puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do chatters we know the world is filled with mystery and secrets those pesky puppet masters of the power pyramid have no interest in sharing with us but we've seen many indications in the last few years that something big is going on in antarctica and why shouldn't there be yes we've been told it's a huge sad lonely block of ice nothing but a diving board for penguins but we're talking about five and a half million square miles a landmass the size of the united states and mexico combined and when you consider the fluctuations, resources, and even historical clues that could be lost on a landmass that size, I find it highly suspicious to present it as a total waste of time. Because it wasn't a waste of time for then Secretary of State John Kerry or Newt Gingrich, Buzz Aldrin, or the Patriarch of Russia, or any of the other privileged people tasked with making trips to such a wasteland in recent years. Doesn't seem to be a waste of time for the multitude of major corporations and military contractors who are also very much active on the big block of nothing. Throw in the legendary speculation of a passageway to the inner earth and you got yourself some real reasons to wonder. Though today on THC we're going to get past the guessing and talk to Dr. Michael Sala who recently released a heavy book about this very subject and the hidden history, secret bases, and real geography of the icy continent entitled Antarctica's Hidden History, Corporate Foundations of Secret Space Programs, which weighs in at over 300 fascinating pages. If you don't know Dr. Sala, he's been a pioneer in the development of exopolitics, the political study of the key actors, institutions, and processes associated with extraterrestrial life, he has a PhD in government from the University of Queensland, Australia, and an MA in philosophy from the University of Melbourne. He's written several other great books on intriguing topics like exopolitics, political implications of the extraterrestrial presence, insiders reveal secret space programs and extraterrestrial alliances, and Kennedy's last stand, Eisenhower, UFOs, MJ-12, and the JFK assassination. Dr. Sala also founded the Exopolitics Institute in 2005, the Exopolitics Journal in 2006, and he has co-organized five international conferences on extraterrestrial life and earth transformation on the Big Island of Hawaii. Truly a man on a mission to break the chains of secrecy, reveal the hidden hands in global affairs, and usher in a new world of knowing, Dr. Michael Sala, welcome to the higher side. Aloha, Greg. Glad to be here. Man, I am just super excited for this one. I'm a big enthusiast of anything inner Earth or Antarctica related, and your book does contain a good amount of documentation and the pulling together of threads to form a cohesive timeline for what's really been going on down there over the years. But just to lay a good base here, talk to us about the landscape of Antarctica, because there have been some fresh announcements in the last few years that really confirm that the conditions are better for life and maybe even secret bases than we might have thought previously. Is that right? That's right, Greg. The first thing people have to keep in mind is that Antarctica, as you mentioned, is a vast landmass. 
And on the surface, there are near the coastline a number of bases that have been set up by national governments. There's approximately 50 different nations that have signed up to the Antarctic Treaty that have bases there. And these bases do a lot of scientific research. That's where they do the climate studies, the penguin studies. They look at the oceans and measure the melt of the ice and so forth. So these are kind of legitimate science projects. But the real covert stuff is happening deep under the ice sheets. And this is what we really like exploring now. What is under that two mile of ice that covers a lot of the surface of Antarctica? And there's been a lot of rumors, speculation going back many decades about Germans escaping to Antarctica, establishing bases deep under the underground ice. But what's different now is that mainstream science has finally caught up and is acknowledging that deep under the Antarctic ice, there's a vast ecosystem which is thermally heated, which is oxygenated, which is a balmy 25 degrees Celsius, where there can be vegetation, and it's very habitable. So this is the first time that it has been acknowledged by scientists that underneath that two miles of ice, you've got a vast landscape of an unknown territory. And this is where it gets really interesting because now we actually have a possibility of verifying that the Germans did indeed establish bases under the ice sheet back in the mid-1940s. Yes, yes, it is a lot to unpack. And I guess to get into the story itself, if we're going to be somewhat linear, it's a tangled web, of course, that includes many of the nefarious names we know, the Dulles Brothers, the Bush family, Brown Brothers Harriman, IBM, Lockheed Martin, the Rand Corporation, IG Farben, and more. But it starts with the Thule Society, where you write, the historic roots of the first secret space program and its genesis can be traced back to the early years of the Weimar Republic. At the end of the First World War in 1919, a number of German secret societies began collaborating in the development of flying saucer prototypes based on the designs received through the telepathic communications of an unusually beautiful and highly skilled psychic medium, Maria Orsic. And I think that is a great place to start this, too. So we know a little bit about German occultism in this audience, but talk to us about this origin point for UFO technology in 1919. Yes, Maria Orsic and the Thule Society, it's a very interesting development there for the Germans. Just after the end of the First World War, Germany is regrouping, and there's a lot of interest in these secret societies that talk about the past grandeur of the Aryan race tens of thousands of years ago. And the Thule Society is probably the most popular and well-known of these secret societies. And they are organized around the idea that there was once this ancient Aryan civilization called the Hyperboreans and that their capital was Ultima Thule. And so that's where you get the name Thule Society. And Maria Orsic was a very talented psychic And they recognized her as having this ability to communicate not only with these inner earth beings, the Hyperboreans, but also with these off-world extraterrestrial species. And so this is where in the early 1920s, Maria Orsic starts getting this psychic information and she does some automatic writing and it's in ancient Sumerian and the German scholars decipher it and it's the basic 
blueprint for building a space-time device. And so that's the beginning of the German space program in the Weimar Republic, and it really began with these secret societies like the Thule Society, Maria Orsic, getting this psychic information from off-world beings and also from inner-world beings who were giving them hints on how to develop this technology. And eventually, after about a decade of secret laboratory research and development, they came up with the first prototype, which was called the Vrilcraft, and that pretty much coincided with Adolf Hitler coming to power. And and Hitler, this is another thing to keep in mind, was a protege of the Thule Society as well. So the Thule Society not only sponsored and helped Maria Osic in her research and development of secret space technologies, but also helped Adolf Hitler in his rise to power. They funded him, they provided him the main newspaper, they provided him high-level society contacts, police protection, Navy protection, all of these things to help the Nazi party take off. So the Thule Society was ultimately pulling the strings of Hitler and the Nazi party, and this was all happening behind the scenes. Right. I think it's fascinating history. And so we have these German occultists that are channeling plans for UFOs. They're working on these crafts through two world wars. And I've never heard this, but in your book, you say that when Hitler outlawed secret societies, the Vril Society registered as a corporation that translates to Vril Propulsion Workshops. That's really fascinating. Is that right? That's right. Yes. That's one of the things that has come through the records, what's been preserved of Maria Orsic, that there was that change so that she could conform with these new regulations. But the work that she was doing was really kind of indispensable for what was happening in Antarctica because she was a highly gifted psychic and she was in communication with extraterrestrials, or at least that's what the German occultists believed. And certainly that's what the Nazi SS believed because they were trying to piggyback on the information Orsic was getting from her extraterrestrial contacts and build a weaponized flying saucer program for the Nazi SS. So she changed her real society name to something much more scientific because ultimately she felt that there was no real dividing line between the occult and science. And that's really why the Germans got ahead so quickly. And this is well documented. Many U.S. military officials were really puzzled. You know, how come the Germans, in less than 20 years, got ahead of the Allied powers in aerospace programs, given that they lost the First World War? How could that have happened? Well, the answer is that the Germans, after the First World War, blended occult studies with scientific research and that's why they got ahead so quickly because they didn't differentiate whereas western scientists did so they progressed in a very predictable linear newtonian physics way with a little bit of quantum physics thrown in a very linear development whereas the german space program and german scientists had this quantum leap because they were factoring consciousness in to everything they were doing Mm. Yes, I think it's more obvious now than ever that that dividing line is pretty much non-existent, and they were probably right to get on that so early. 
And so what more can you tell us about maybe the players involved in the stages of anti-gravitic crafts made during those years from 1919 all the way up through the 1940s? Because there were several phases and models, correct? I mean, this isn't a small thing. That's right. There were some really important scientists involved in this program. Probably the most important was Professor Winifred Schumann, who was the head of the Electrophysics Laboratory at the University of Munich. And he was a Thule Society member, and he was the one that actually helped build the prototypes according to the blueprints that Osich had developed. So he was working very closely with Osich, and he was an expert in high-voltage electrostatics and also in high-energy plasma physics. So these were the things that were necessary for building anti-gravity craft and also utilizing some of the ideas of torsion field physics, which does bend space-time. This is a physics that is still not mainstream, but what Schumann and other scientists found was that when you rotate plasma, which is greatly pressurized and rotates at a high-temperature vacuum environment, it creates a space-time effect. So you can actually bend space-time. And so this was the principle for the propulsion systems that were developed for the German flying saucer programs. Another prominent German scientist or inventor was Hans Kohler. He came up with the free energy device that was adopted by the German Navy for their submarines and also for the spacecraft. So this was a very important means of generating free energy. So the free energy was something that Western scientists had also been discussing. Of course, you had Nikola Tesla pioneering a lot of free energy research in the early 1900s. He incidentally was friends with Maria Osich because Nikola Tesla and Maria Osich's father were both Croatian engineers from the same generation. So they knew each other. Hmm. So the Orsich family were friends with Nikola Tesla. So they shared a lot of information. And Tesla is a lot of history to him when it comes to communications with extraterrestrials. But Tesla was involved. Thomas Townsend Brown was also a brilliant scientist. He developed the electrogravitic. He had the first patent in England on electrogravitics. I think it was 1928. So you had a bunch of these German scientists and Western scientists coming up with these ideas of electrogravitics, torsion field physics, free energy devices, and all of this was essential for building these flying saucer devices. Mm, yes, man. It is so fascinating, and it sounds like a lot of information to just dismiss or deny. There seems to be a lot there if you pull on every thread. And what about the Nazis' Antarctic retreat? This has been debated quite a lot. I've had several guests who just don't see the evidence for it. I think your book makes a strong case, but what do you consider the most convincing evidence that lays this issue to rest, where we can say, yes, definitively, the Nazis did make a base in Antarctica where they continued their work on UFO technology and free energy devices? Well, probably the most persuasive evidence is, of course, we know that under Captain Alfred Richter, the Germans had an expedition to Antarctica in 1938-39. But what is not well known is that in June of 1939, President Roosevelt issued executive orders for Admiral Byrd to go down to Antarctica and find the Nazi bases down there 
locate where they had been built and determine whether or not they had been violating the Monroe Doctrine. So Roosevelt in 1939 knew that the Germans had established bases in Antarctica and had given instructions for Byrd, who was the leading U.S. polar explorer to lead an expedition for the 1939-1940 season to down to Antarctica to find where the Germans had built their base. And so this is pretty incontrovertible that the United States knew in 1930 that the Germans had built bases in Antarctica. And then you have a whole number of whistleblowers, former insiders that talk about the Germans having built bases down there. But you actually have stories in the New York Times and other major tabloids in the United States discussing Admiral Byrd's expedition to Antarctica, and I reference that in the book. So it's a fact that the Americans were looking for the German bases in 1939, and then we have people who have talked at length about how the Germans found the bases, who helped them find the bases, what were built down there, and the equipment and the resources and the scientists that went down there. Right. I mean, for this to have happened, the Germans would have had to send just massive convoys and made huge supply trips and built out a pretty huge infrastructure down there. And, you know, according to your book, it does seem like there's plenty of documentation, plenty of comments made by prominent Nazis to indicate that that's true. I just wonder why it is so hard for World War II historians to pick up on those threads. I think a lot of people just don't appreciate how well the Nazis were able to hide the movement of large numbers of people and resources secretly. It's well documented that the Nazis developed these huge underground facilities in occupied Europe. Nordhausen in the Haas Mountains is probably one of the best known, and that's where they basically took the V1, V2 rocket program after the Penamunde facilities had been bombed on the Baltic Sea coastline there. And so the Nazis, during 1942, realized that the war was going to be a long one, and they made preparations to move everything underground. And so they commissioned their scientific institutions to start mapping all the underground caverns in Germany in order to start building vast facilities down there. And at the same time, the German Navy began to accelerate the transports of men and women and resources down to Antarctica because the war was starting to go badly for them. And as the war continued to go badly, well, the Nazis just continued to accelerate the movement of supplies. And this was all done secretly through their submarine fleets, through their very large Junker planes, and also through these underground cavern systems that penetrated Europe and even going into Africa and further than that. So that's one of the mysteries, is exactly how extensive are these underground cavern systems, not only in Antarctica, but also in Europe and Africa, and are they linked? According to William Tompkins, and I discussed this in the book, I haven't been able to confirm it, he says that the cavern systems run all the way from Antarctica up through Africa and right up into Europe, which is a phenomenal thing to say. 
But, you know, he said that this was something that U.S. Navy spies learned about during the infiltration of the German aerospace industry. And so this was another way in which the Germans were able to secretly move supplies and people all the way from occupied Europe down to Antarctica. Right. Huge can of worms. And those tunnels are everywhere. It's hard to know if they truly connect. But I mean, it's hard to also find a piece of land on this planet that doesn't have huge natural or unnatural cavern systems below it. So it is a curious thing when you consider what the hell was going on in the past. Well, this is one of the things that people will start learning about. Richard Sorda, Dr. Richard Sorda, he's written a couple of books talking about underground bases in the United States and worldwide. And he identifies these bases as basically being linked by these vast kind of tunnel systems where you can actually have maglev trains that can move at supersonic speeds, not only in the United States, but around the globe. So right there, you have someone who, by studying declassified documents, has understood that this is a worldwide tunnel network that we're talking about, where you can move people and resources very quickly using this tunnel network with the hypersonic train system. So this is one of the things that I think makes possible what Bill Tomkins said, that in fact, the Germans had stumbled on these underground cavern systems all the way from Europe down to Antarctica itself, which is a phenomenal thing to say. But even without that, even without these alleged tunnel systems from Europe to Antarctica, you still had the German submarines that could travel secretly and transport people and supplies from occupied Europe right down to Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like maybe they rediscovered some ancient systems and just repurposed them. And so I want to also kind of fast forward up to today because a lot of people are curious about what's going on there now. We've had several major people making trips down there. We had that Fitbit release of that heat map and where their devices are being used. And a lot of them showed up in Antarctica to people's surprise. Maybe the best thing to do would be to give people the context of Charles Hapgood's work and Earth crust displacement theory so that the findings down there make a little bit more sense. Okay, well, Hapgood basically, his argument was that the geophysical poles shift periodically and that the shift means that what is now the South Pole over the Antarctic continent at another time could have been just in open ocean and the landmass of Antarctica could have been in a temperate zone. And so that is pretty consistent with what we know of the ancient sea kings. Uh, Charles Hapgood was able to analyze the Perry race maps, the Orontius Phineas maps, which were 16th century maps that showed Antarctica being ice free, which indicated that at one point, probably before the last great flood, that happened 12,000 years or so ago, Antarctica was in a temperate zone of the Pacific. And so that meant that the great flood that occurred 12,000 years ago uh, coincided with a pole shift. And so this is where we get into the scientific debate about North America being covered by ice sheets. And then about 12,000 years ago, the ice sheets suddenly melt. And that's what caused the great flood, which inundated so many different civilizations around the planet. And so this was something that led to 
Antarctica being moved from its ice-free location to the South Pole and being very quickly covered by ice. Now, Hapgood's theory was endorsed by Albert Einstein, and Einstein pointed out that the key scientific variable here that determines when a pole shift occurs is the amount of ice at the North and South Poles, that as ice accumulates at either the North or the South Pole, then you have the ingredient for a pole shift occurring. So by the same token, if a lot of ice melts at the poles, then you can have a pole shift occurring again. So this is what makes what's happening today at the South Pole and Antarctica very, very important for everyone to pay attention to because with the ice melting primarily in the West Antarctic because of the increased volcanic activity down there, the volcanoes under the ice sheets are being triggered and it's been discovered, it's been confirmed recently that Antarctica actually has the world's largest volcanic field. That wasn't known before. Only last year was it confirmed that all of these volcanoes have been discovered and now they're being triggered. So the ice sheets from underneath are melting. So the ice in Antarctica is slowly disappearing and that affects the weight distribution in Antarctica. So not only with the ice disappearing can you have things being exposed, you have ancient artifacts being exposed, you have suddenly flash frozen cities being exposed, being discovered, you have extraterrestrial craft being discovered, but also you have the ice distribution in Antarctica being skewed tremendously because while West Antarctica is melting, East Antarctica is not melting. It's remaining the same. So this is setting off a pretty powerful geological phenomenon where you could actually have the weight displacement in the South Pole triggering a pole shift. Mm. It is a lot, but we have so many mysteries about floods and ice sheets and massive changes in the past that a lot of people are trying to work out. And this theory does answer a lot of those questions as you described. So it is really interesting. But you also mentioned flash frozen cities or civilizations, and we got to hit that because I guess it would be this Lake Vostok anomaly that really started to heat things up in 2000, 2001. People noticed this anomaly. And uh, I guess talk to us about the Lake Vostok area and what this was. Okay, so Lake Vostok is the deepest fresh ocean lake in Antarctica. And around 1990, scientists discovered that the lake was there. And they also discovered this giant anomaly at one side of the lake, which was about 50 miles in diameter. And it displayed the characteristics of a location with a lot of metal, kind of like metals that would be found in a city. So that's when people started to speculate and there was a lot of rumors about them having discovered a city in Antarctica. Fast forward to around 2001-2002, the Raytheon Corporation now has the Antarctic contract with the National Science Foundation and they're sending teams of people down to this frozen city or this magnetic anomaly in Antarctica and the scientists or the teams that are being sent down there are getting sick, and rumors start to emerge of a flash-frozen civilization having been found with advanced technologies. And so you have 
these rumours starting. And then you have some insiders talking about the excavations of the ancient civilization down there. Lake Vostok is one of these locations. There's probably multiple locations, just as the United States has a number of cities that are all part of the United States. Similarly, Antarctica, prior to it being flash frozen, had a number of cities, a number of settlements. Sure, you had your capital, but then you had other major settlements around the Antarctic continent, which is vast. And so this is what's being discovered now. So there's probably multiple cities or settlements or ruins that have been found throughout the landmass, and Lake Vostok is one of those. Hmm. So let's touch on your expertise here for a minute. But when you factor in geopolitics today, what does this last election have to do with what's been found down there? Well, Donald Trump, he is a very interesting person because according to a number of sources that I've been studying and I think are very credible, Trump was chosen by the U.S. military to run as a kind of figurehead so that the military could do things behind the scenes to take down the deep state whose agenda is something that the U.S. military very strenuously objects to. Trump is a mouthpiece or figurehead for the military to take down the deep state. And we have seen many of Trump's policies being targeted against international practices that are part of how the deep state operates. For example, in December 21 of 2017, Trump passed an executive order which basically targeted international human trafficking and corruption, and this said that this was a national emergency. So this is really the first time that any American president has ever declared human rights happening around the world as constituting a national emergency for the United States. Why did he do that? Well, the explanation is that this empowers the U.S. military to operate under national emergency conditions to basically send troops, special operations forces around the world to begin arresting and detaining people and bringing them to the United States or to Guantanamo for debriefing or enhanced interrogation and so forth. Hmm. Yeah, I do get skeptical sometimes about just the routine of every new president is going to really help us out this time. But there are some things to note that are different. And it is true that John Podesta and Hillary Clinton made some comments about UFOs, and it seemed like maybe they had some kind of plan, and that maybe there is a conflict related to this content and how to deliver it to people, how to frame it. And uh, I guess I could entertain that possibility for sure. Right. Well, this is one of the things that QAnon movement has really been focusing on is this nexus between Trump and this U.S. military, especially the intelligence community, that white hats that are feeding the Trump administration intelligence for how to take down the deep state and in leaking that information to the public through these anonymous drops on the 4chan and 8chan posting boards. And so there's been quite a movement that has been built around QAnon. And so far, I've found it to be very credible and giving a lot of 
very helpful information for how to understand this struggle between the Trump administration with the US military backing him quietly behind the scenes and the deep state and how they control the US media, US Congress and the US culture generally and of course internationally. Well, it does seem like there is an off-the-books physics, secret sciences that they have quarantined away from the university system and the mainstream system. And it's kind of interesting times right now because the U.S. is having a rough time economically, it seems, and it might be necessary to open up these technologies for a new industrial revolution if the U.S. doesn't want to lose its footing. The economy doesn't have many other places left to go. It seems like we've squeezed most of the juice out of this thing in this debt-based system. I think that's a compelling element to the possibility that maybe there is some change behind the scenes and maybe, begrudgingly, these technologies might get dragged out to the light just for the sake of people who have nationalist feelings or really do want to see America stay number one, this might be the only way to keep the U.S. on top. I agree. I think so. I mean, basically, the deep state, for anyone that's been paying attention, is moving resources and moving a lot of its infrastructure and finances to China. China is earmarked to be the next global superpower. And the deep state, is wanting to do this by undermining the U.S. as the current superpower. And a lot of the policies that the deep state has been pursuing are orienting China to supplant the U.S. as the world's major financial hub. And once the rug is pulled out of the U.S. economy, the U.S. dollar will plunge and the U.S. economy would collapse. That was the deep state's plan. But Trump has come in acting on behalf of the U.S. military, and he has a different plan, which is to reindustrialize America and make America a hub for this new technology, technology that would take America or to take the planet into the 22nd century, into this kind of Star Trek-like utopia where free energy devices, torsion field physics, alternative healing devices, the whole way in which we view ourselves that that would be changed tremendously by these technologies being released. And I think that's the plan. And Trump wants to do it. And he's got the full support of the US military behind him. And it will be done to maintain America's superpower status for decades to come. So I think that's the plan of the American patriots, the nationalist community. They don't want to see America thrown on the financial scrap heap just so that the deep state can move everything over to China. They want to maintain American power for decades to come. Hmm. It's a captivating possibility. I am skeptical, but I'm going to wait and see what happens. Let's hope for the best. And to talk more about this flash frozen civilization under the ice and who they were, in the book you call this civilization the Pre-Adamites, saying, after arriving in what is now Antarctica approximately 55,000 years ago, the pre-Adamites found a rich, fertile planet with a large native population less technologically advanced than themselves. Soon after, the pre-Adamites decided to create hybrid beings using their advanced genetic technology who would act as intermediaries for them with the rest of the Earth. 
Now that's interesting, and it could make sense of not only a lot of mythologies and legends related to the gods or ancient wars in the sky, but also the elongated skulls, which aren't much of a secret anymore either, right? Right. I think a lot of that information about the pre-Adamites having a civilization down in Antarctica, that dovetails very much with some ancient myths, and in particular, the Book of Enoch. There are actually three books of Enoch that are in circulation, and essentially they describe this phenomenon where before the last great flood, you had this patriarchal figure, Enoch, having these experiences with the angels and being brought up to heaven and having these meetings with all of these different angels and eventually being asked to intercede on behalf of another group of angels called the fallen angels. Well, you know, what do we make of that? Well, I think we look at that as not being kind of like mythology, but actually being a historical record of relationships between different extraterrestrial groups who ancient humans referred to as angels, and that there was a conflict between them, and that Enoch was summoned to be an intermediary between these conflicting angels. And the books of Enoch actually describe how the angels that lost this pre-flood conflict or this war were banished down to Antarctica. So here you have the Antarctic connection in the Book of Enoch, where it describes that Enoch was taken to a land in the far south where it blazed day and night. So that's describing Antarctica. And it described a, a range of seven mountains where the watchers were buried, or the watchers were imprisoned for 10,000 years. So the watchers were imprisoned for 10,000 years in this mountain range. And it describes Mount Vincent, which is part of the Sentinel mountain ranges. So right there you have quite a coincidence, you know, like the Sentinel mountain ranges and the watchers. The watchers are buried in the Sentinel mountain ranges. And this dovetails with what recent insiders have been telling us, that there are these extraterrestrial motherships that are buried deep under the Antarctic ice and that the pre-Adamites are in stasis chambers there, and they're about to awaken, and that the global elite, the deep state people, worship these pre-Adamites as their genetic ancestors, and they basically want to awaken them and restore them to the vaulted positions that they once had. So right there, you have some really interesting developments as to what is actually buried deep under the Antarctic ice in terms of motherships, extraterrestrials buried there or hidden there in stasis chambers, and is there a plan by the deep state to awaken these people who have the elongated skulls and the forerunners for a worldwide civilization of Homo capensis, which is these elongated skull beings, that these beings are going to come forward and maybe try to establish themselves as the global rulers again. Hmm, I find that fascinating. And yeah, the whole thing is a little convoluted. I mean, especially with the ancient past, there seems to be some collective memory, though, of a big conflict of epic scale, probably exactly what we're talking about here. And I had that in my notes as well, that it seems like a faction of the current cabal might be working to try to reanimate these people or to somehow bring them back. And that is a creepy proposition. But it's not the only non-human element at play here because the book talks largely about a reptilian faction that seems to be very much in line with 
the Germans or the Nazi party or this faction that has helped them build their crafts and build up their bases in Antarctica. But there's also groups of Nordics that seem to be on the other side and aligned with us in different ways. Is that how you see it? Well, that's right. Yes. It's like what we were just discussing, that conflict that was described in the books of Enoch between the positive angels and the negative angels, fallen and righteous angels. And that tells us that these conflicts between the gods or the angels really represents different extraterrestrial factions that have been warring against one another for influence over the earth for tens of thousands of years. And so with Germany, Germany was no different. In the early 1920s, you had a positive group of extraterrestrials, human-looking extraterrestrials, that first made contact with Maria Orsic and the Thule Society, and they began helping them to develop this civilian space program that would help present this information to the entire planet. So to begin with, it began as a civilian effort to kind of like share this information widely. But what happened was when Adolf Hitler came to power in 1933, because he represented a more aggressive nationalist political orientation, another group of extraterrestrials began to work with him because they were more in alignment with him, and that is the reptilian group of extraterrestrials. So right there, you have two different factions of extraterrestrials that began associating themselves with the Germans in the immediate post-war World War I period and during World War II. And this is what was also occurring in Antarctica. You had the Germans. Some of them continued to work with this human-looking group in alignment with inner Earth civilizations, while another group of Germans continued to work with the reptilians and build very big space fleets that would go into deep space and coordinate with the reptilians. Man, so you also mentioned whistleblowers, and I got to ask you about these guys, Bill Tompkins and Corey Good. Their testimonies are cited many times in the book. Personally, I am really entertained by a lot of what they say, but I just can't get over this 20 and back idea that you sign up for the secret space program, you do your 20 years, and then they age regress you back and you fit right back in where you were before the mission. That part alone is just a really hard pill for me to swallow. What can we look at to try to even halfway verify what these guys are saying? I know you put some stock in these whistleblowers. How have you vetted them or what can you say to maybe make these claims seem more realistic and credible? Right. Well, there's a number of things there. So let me approach that in a number of ways. Firstly, as far as the credibility of Corey Good and William Tompkins is concerned, what I've done in the book is match their testimonies or compared it to what other credible whistleblowers have told us. One is Clark McClelland, who worked with NASA. He was a spacecraft operator. He was with NASA for, I believe it was 34 years. And he confirmed a lot of what Corey Good and William Tompkins were saying about the Germans establishing a secret space program in Antarctica and that they had infiltrated the U.S. military industrial complex. Another insider source was Vladimir Tuzinski, who was a Bulgarian engineer who was with the Bulgarian Academy of Sciences, and he was instrumental in having a lot of the Nazi SS files that the KGB had in its possession released after the collapse of the Warsaw Pact. 
1991. So you had a lot of that documentation coming forward. And all of that helps corroborate what Corey Good and William Tompkins has said in one of my previous books titled The U.S. Navy Secret Space Program and Nordic Extraterrestrial Alliance. I produce a lot of documents that show that William Tompkins was who he says he was, that there was a Navy program that was getting this kind of information. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as the 20 and back program is concerned, what we're seeing now is white world science acknowledging that age regression is viable. Scientific studies have shown that you can actually regress cells and organs years. And so there's a number of programs which are white wall programs that are now studying the feasibility of this kind of age regression being used on humans. And they're talking about the next five years being when they are going to start laboratory experiments on humans. So this is white wall technology. And I think for those that are kind of familiar with a lot of these covert programs, understand that what occurs in the covert programs are generally 30 years or more ahead of the white world studies and programs. So that means that if we now, in 2018, are actively implementing studies that age regress animals and are preparing to use this on humans, that means that this was done in covert laboratories at least 30 years ago. So that takes us to the early 1990s, at the very least, or 1980s. And that's the period around which these gentlemen, Corey Good, William Tompkins and others, say that this kind of age regression technologies began to be used in the covert programs. Hmm. That does make some sense. It is just a a lot to take in right there. But of course, if I'm looking for some way to kind of, you know, accept this, it is true that UFO encounters a lot of the time involve missing time, that people seem to just have hours gone and they come back to their same time and place. And of course, that's a short scale version. But again, we're at that same nexus of UFOs, of time manipulation, age regression. Uh, It kind of fits when you think about it that way. Right. And this whole thing of age, going back to what the ancient records, if we go to the Old Testament, it talks about these pre-diluvial figures like Methuselah and Lamarck and Noah and Jared. All of these guys, they, they live to a thousand years. And, and the Bible talks about those after the great flood living multiple centuries. And then by the time you get to Moses, you know, Moses lived to 150. And then, of course, we're getting Saul and David and so forth. And they're living normal lifespans. So it's like, well, what happened? I think these ancient societies did have technologies where they could live a very long time. And the consciousness was different as well. So, you know, this whole kind of consciousness and technology interface is very, very important. And so I think that in this pre-flood era, people could live a thousand years. And now we've gone down a downward curve in terms of age, around 70, 80 years. But now we're on that upward curve again. And I think we're starting to see it with the technology being released. We're starting to see it with the secret space program insiders coming forward talking about how these technologies are being used and they could live a long time, how many people involved in the programs themselves can live for centuries. 
the Nordics and others can live for a thousand years. So I think we're now on an upward climb where human lifespan is going to be extended. So this whole idea of age regression, what's really happening is that we are purifying the human body, which has within it the inherent genetic disposition for living a thousand years in a youthful young body. And we are removing from it all the toxic pollutants and the thought forms that have made us age to where we are. So I think this whole idea of age regression, it's going to become bigger and bigger and bigger. And ultimately, it is something that all of us are going to start practicing to extend our lifespans. Hmm. It seems like it might be an expensive process. I don't know if it's going to filter down to your average person. And uh, Dr. Sala, I find this all to be fascinating stuff. I do think a lot of the pieces and elements line up nicely. It's far out, but it might be one of the biggest secrets out there. So people can follow your work. Tell them about your website and anything else you got going on. Sure. My website is exopolitics.org. That's exopolitics.org. There I'm regularly putting up new articles, so you can read all of those. All of that's for free. I've got a few books on the secret space programs. The third book in the series is Antarctica's Hidden History. You could either get that from my website, an autographed copy, or you can get it from Amazon. And I'll be doing a number of appearances soon. I'll be going to Contact in the Desert in Palm Springs at the end of May, beginning of June. And then later there'll be a conference, uh, Dimensions of Disclosure with Corey Good. And I'll also be doing a webinar on Antarctica sometime in August. So all of those things, you can go to my website and get information about that. Awesome. Well, this has been a great time. Big thanks to you for being here and for walking the path less traveled. Do take care out there and keep fighting the good fight. Thanks so much, Greg. Thanks for all you do to bring this information out into the public. Aloha. There it is, dear listeners. There it is. Dr. Michael Sala. Been a long time coming, and you got to love those birds in the background. That's what happens when you do an interview outside. I tried to cut a lot of the chirping out, but it's hard to fully quell Mother Nature, as we know. But Dr. Sala is someone who's been requested many times over the years, and I'm glad we could finally make it happen, especially after seeing an entire book focused directly on the Antarctic aspects of the big conspiracy. Funny enough, I got this request specifically from the Plus Forum, and the person who requested it followed up on their post with this message where they said, It was a waste of time to post this. Carl Wood is too close-minded for this info, and he ignores 99% of the suggestions he gets. He doesn't give a fuck about his listeners. We're just a cash cow for him. And that's just not true. You're not just a cash cow for me. Clearly, I'm not too close-minded for the information. And maybe I do check the forums for suggestions, and maybe I have a list of about 200 people long. And I also have publishers and potential guests writing me themselves all the time on top of people that I'm really trying to get. So sometimes you just got to trust me that I'll get to certain people and certain topics when I can and be patient. Five shows a month does not take long to fill up, so go easy on me. I already had to take a recent tolerance break from anything related to THC, and it felt good just to decompress a bit. And I'll never forget how lucky I am to have this job, but sometimes it's a job, and the customers insult me in the same breath they're requesting something from me. 
Sometimes it doesn't feel that much different from retail at all. But at least I can do it from home. <laughs> but getting back to Dr. Sala's book and the content he lays out, I've said this before, so it shouldn't be a surprise. I said it to Dr. Sala earlier, but I have this problem with the Super Soldier 20 and back whistleblowers. There's a couple of them out there now. They just don't ring true to me, which does not mean I wouldn't have them on the show, but they're definitely not the first group of people I'm trying to go for. And as much as they are referenced in the book and the interview that we just had, thankfully, I don't think the narrative overall depends on them. But again, and something I do like, is that channeled information is at the heart of this whole thing. Maria Orsich and Tesla both seem to be in contact with something giving them technology. But when I asked Dr. Sala for the best evidence that the Nazis actually escaped, because when we talk to a guy like Joseph Farrell about this, he thinks that it's too big of a job to not have a huge paper trail. And I respect that. But Dr. Sala thought the best evidence was Admiral Byrd's massive convoy down there. Why send it? And I think that's a fair point. You could say there's a parallel between the Roswell crash and saying it was aliens and the bird expedition and saying it was about the hollow earth. Both are sort of huge over-the-top stories to distract and bury the very real reality of this Nazi saucer factory in the land of ice. Now, I don't really take that perspective, but I could see where someone would because it kind of fits in that Court Lindahl type of way of, hey, we're putting something out there, but there's really a deeper story, and that's where the truth is, rather than the sensationalist aspects. At least that's his take, and I think sometimes he's absolutely right. And I could see at the time how the establishment would be happy having you believe anything except that Nazis escaped and are flying around in flying saucers. I also think the timeline of this stuff syncs up really well. Let's look at that timeline he pulled together. 1919, Vril get a message. Then there's years of development with multiple rounds and multiple models of craft. The Germans go to South America and Antarctica early in the 1940s. UFOs are seen everywhere by 1947. Operation High Jump finds them in 1947. The CIA is created in 1947. Operation Paperclip makes contact and secret deals with the Antarctic side. Diplomatic negotiations ensue. Then a few years after 1947, in 1952, is that UFO White House flyover. And then in 1955, the dealing opened up more cooperation and U.S.-Russian facilities in Antarctica. Then you got the out there stuff in 1960 of the saucer fueled manned missions to the moon, Mars, and beyond occurring from that Antarctic base. We see all that stuff happening in 1961. There's that Antarctic Treaty. And then there's a big gap until 2001 when apparently that Lake Vostok anomaly got on the radar. And now we have all this increased activity down there. I mean, there are some huge holes, some huge blind spots in that timeline. But in my worldview, in my conspiratorial tapestry, if you will, I think that is a pretty strong thread. Then we throw gasoline on that fire with the pre-atomites being thawed out and all that jazz, and that, to me, is what makes a good THC show. <laughs> 
We definitely hit you with some education, not in the mainstream narrative. And then we pop you with some way more speculative elements that can also be peppered in to say, maybe this thing has many, many wild, wild layers. But even if you just want to get into it from a conventional politics way, you can almost do that. And I still think it's great. I still think it's explosive. Obviously, Dr. Sala is a big name in the ufology and exopolitics community, and I am pleased that he would honor my request, and I'm thankful to the cranky listener even who recommended him. But that's another thing. If you recommend someone, and if I do see it, and if I do actually get the time to digest the material, which is often not something you can just skim, and then if I think it's a good fit, they have to actually respond to me and want to do it. So there's a fair amount of steps in that process. I mean, we're not Alcoholics Anonymous, but we're up there. And the big thing here that got me reflecting was that 1952 White House flyover. I've heard some researchers saying that this was a direct ET threat for not giving back the bodies and saucer from Roswell. And when I was a kid who didn't know much about this post-war Nazi element, that made sense but it seems like a very human action. Only humans are going to care about the posturing of a White House flyover. So the idea that it was part of a strong arming of negotiations leading up to some kind of deal makes the most sense to me. Maybe Nazis were partnered with these beings. Maybe they brought alien demands to the bargaining table as well as their own. But either way, I love hearing about it. Of course, I'm skeptical of any disclosure from the top down, but that we need a new industrial revolution to stay on top argument is probably the best sounding one, but it implies that people who already have this stuff and hundreds of millions of dollars, it implies that they care about us, which is a nice sentiment, (laughs) but come on. They might care about their companies and if they're having problems and could usher in all this new technology and make millions more, now there's an incentive. I've been saying it for a while now, too, but the Trump stuff is pretty compelling. Just John G. Trump and Hanover Bush talking about exotic energy systems and the damn Trump name showing up on the Delshaw drawings numbered 4,500. That stuff is crazy. I wonder if we'll ever get the full picture, but I try to just stay neutral until we see something tangible. This is one of those topics that takes so much context, and I really wanted to go through it chronologically because I think the bullet points of the timeline is what makes the best argument for the case overall, but I realized 30 minutes in that we weren't going to get as deep into the modern parts of the story as I would have wanted in the first hour, so we switched it a little bit, and I jumped to the end to try to get those free listeners some of that good stuff. But it is the plus show that really shines with new information because we get into the use of slave labor in Antarctica, which is a big part of his book, other inner earth elements of the bigger story, a deeper breakdown of how that 1952 UFO White House flyover is related, and also what Dr. Sala expects to see happening in the next decade or two relating to these technologies. And of course, all this business about the pre-Adamites and the elite's goal of reviving them, reptilians too, it is all in the mix. So if you like the Higher Side Chats, if you've enjoyed the years of shows I've done, please sign up to hear the second hour. This is a damn good one to start with, but there are so many waiting for you. And your subscriptions keep me going. But really just do it for you, not me. 
Do it because you like the show I make and you want to hear more of it, cash cow or not. <laughs> so I did want to say also in THC News, women's t-shirts are about a week away. I'm generating SKUs now, had a developer work on the website a little bit just to straighten out how the images were displayed. And I know I got a lot of ladies asking about that. It is very close. I just need to get my latest interview over to the editor. Enjoy the three-day E3 pass I got hooked up with. Get back down to San Diego and crank out the rest of the month. I feel like we're on a roll with some really strong shows, even though Mark Passio is a bit more split than I would have thought. I'd still count him in the plus column. But Michael Wan, Susquehanna Alchemy, and Jason Louv on John D. Loved both those shows, and they pair nicely. So I did take a few risks with the scheduling this month. We might run into some hits and misses, and if that happens, I'll steer us right back on course with some guarantees I can depend on. But we're always going for gold, so we'll see what happens. I hope you trust me by now to know when a course correction is needed and at least see where I'm coming from with some of the chances that I do take. But I will see you as the road unfolds. Again, sign up for THC Plus at the higher side, chatsplus.com. It's only five bucks and you get a shitload of benefits and twice as much show. And I'm getting out of here. Big thanks again to Dr. Michael Sala and all you fine folks out there in my digital wonderland. I've done my part. Your move, Antarctic Nazis, inner earth reptiles, and pre-atomites of the apocalypse. Your fucking move. This is important, hear what I said I'm trying to tell you It's not paranoia, not in my head It's just the hard truth Knocked on your door while I still can To ask you a question Cause I know your head is still in the sand Don't be sheep to your slaughter for the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed, but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway It's a scary Okay.
Screwed. 